This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. Why are there still so few women leaders in Canadian politics? Lori Wilson reads, No Room at the Top, by Angela Misery. Angela Misery is an assistant professor at Toronto Metropolitan University School of Journalism and a former digital director of The Walrus. This is an article titled, No Room at the Top, by Angela Misery. I'm Lori Wilson. Interim leaders hold a strange position in party politics. They've advanced to one of the highest offices in the country, but at a cost. The role has a built-in expiration date, and these leaders are generally not allowed to run in the following race due to the unfair advantage they would have. Few interim leaders end up making it to the real top spot in the party at a later date. And, as history has shown, this temporary leadership role is as high as most women politicians make it. The brass ring remains frustratingly out of reach. After Aaron O'Toole was ousted as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada on February 2nd, Candace Bergen was quickly elected interim leader, picking up the reins of a party that still seems to be having trouble deciding what it is, what it represents, and how it will take back power from the Liberals. The longtime Manitoba MP for Portage Lisker and former deputy leader may also have joined an exclusive list. Bergen became one of the many qualified women who were trusted by their party to hold things together after a crisis, but whose names often disappear when a permanent leader is discussed. In a Twitter thread from the day Bergen was elected, Kathleen Monk, former director of communications for Jack Layton, pointed out this recurring trend of female interim leaders across federal parties, from the NDP's Nicole Turmel to the Conservatives' Rona Ambrose and compared them to the paltry number who have actually led their party in a permanent position. Quote, We all have these theories, Monk says. It's like, oh, what? Mom's going to heal all the wounds and bring everybody together? And then that also means she can't actually get the big job and she'll be relegated to history. As Monk points out, women party leaders have shown up, albeit rarely, in most of Canada's federal parties. The Conservatives, through their many name changes, have had 22 different leaders according to the Library of Parliament's political parties and leaders database, of which one, Kim Campbell, was a woman, and seven interim leaders, three of whom were women. The NDP has had eight leaders, two of whom were women, and one interim leader, Termal. The Liberals, for all their talk of political gender parity, have had 13 leaders and four interim leaders over nearly 150 years, and none of them were women. Quote, Only Candace Bergen can tell us why she took that position, says Erin Tolley, Canada Research Chair in Gender, Race and Inclusive Politics at Carleton University. Bergen denied an interview request for this story. Quote, But it didn't surprise me. It fits with what we know about women's roles in politics, that they often come in to take leadership roles in situations where the role is possibly less desirable. Tolly says this phenomenon is present in politics around the world and in many democratic parties regardless of ideology. 
quote, that's not to say that the women selected for those positions are not skilled and capable and highly qualified actors. It's just that when they do have the opportunity to take on those leadership responsibilities, it tends to be in less than ideal circumstances. In recent years, as parties across the political spectrum openly discuss the importance of diversity and gender representation, it can feel like women interim leaders have been used as a way of paying lip service to these ideals without making actual changes. More than 100 years after women won the right to run for office, why are there still so few female party leaders? In the 2021 federal election, about 43% of candidates across the five main parties identified as women or gender diverse, according to Equal Voice, an organization that advocates for better political representation. Before the vote, we had 100 female MPs, and afterward, that number rose to 103. The political landscape in Canada is changing, but the change has been slow. Women now fill slightly less than one-third of the seats in Parliament. A woman has had the position of Prime Minister only once, and it lasted less than five months. This gap exists despite the fact that most Canadians say they welcome women politicians. In a 2016 Angus Reid poll, 84% of respondents said that women and men make equally good leaders, and 40% blamed the parties for the lack of women representatives, agreeing that, quote, political parties don't do enough to encourage women candidates. There seems to be something to this second point. According to research from Equal Voice, men are almost twice as likely as women to be approached to run by political parties. Quote, it goes to show the institutional mechanisms that the major political parties have built, says Jane Philpott, a former Liberal MP and Minister of Health, now Dean of Queen's University's Faculty of Health Sciences. Quote, and it takes an enormous amount of collective energy to overcome those power structures. There are many theories for why women have struggled to secure leadership roles. Melanie Thomas, a political scientist at the University of Calgary, rejects the commonly argued excuses that women have lower profiles or that they lack certain qualifications. She cites the 2017 Conservative leadership race that selected Andrew Scheer. As that party election was unfolding, Thomas looked at the list of candidates and thought Lisa Raitt should be a clear front-runner. She'd been in office since 2008, she had experience in three cabinet roles, and she could appeal to voters outside of the party's base. But over seven rounds of ballots, Raitt never got more than 4% of the vote. Thomas says politicians like Raitt and Rona Ambrose, who was interim conservative leader after Stephen Harper stepped down, are just as qualified if not more so, compared with the men who ultimately won the party's leadership roles. Quote, Yet they're not being rewarded in the same kind of way, and this is consistent with leadership positions, Thomas says. According to Raitt, running for leader of the Conservative Party requires years of preparation, including creating a constituency across the country that you can draw from when the party caucus comes together to vote. It's a strategy, she says, she learned from Jason Kenney. 
The past two conservative leaders, Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, both had links to Western MPs and social conservatives, she says. And that's part of why they won. Quote, they had natural constituencies that would give them their base of power. I don't know of any women who would have a natural constituency that they've built up. A constituency is important, and someone like Elizabeth May, former leader of the Green Party, would know. But as the longest-serving female party leader in Canadian federal politics, May is quick to point out that we still live in a society with high degrees of implicit sexism, and this affects how people vote. Quote, when Justin Trudeau decided to have a gender-balanced cabinet, the reaction from some men in the media was, well, does this mean that we're going to have less qualified people in cabinet? They never questioned the credentials of some spectacularly unqualified cabinet ministers over the years. Nobody from the media ever said, oh dear, if we're going to have a male cabinet, surely we're going to miss out on competent people because we've excluded women. May appears to be a clear example of how women can win leadership races just as capably as men. But some experts say that, though women have made great strides in smaller parties, they have faced much more of a challenge when it comes to securing roles in the main parties that actually hold power. Quote, We need to be very careful about equating the leadership of the Green Party with the leadership of the Liberals or Conservatives, says Tolley. For a Green Party activist, this is a desirable position, but for the average political operative, this is not where they would really see themselves playing a powerful political role. There are degrees of prestige, power, and influence in politics, and being the leader of the Green Party is nowhere close to being the most prestigious, powerful, or influential position in Canadian politics. In other words, if you're not in a position to form the government, that's a different kind of fight. And this is perhaps part of the reason why we've seen more women leaders run for, and win, the role of interim leader in the major parties. Quote, You have to run in your caucus, but it's not a drag-em-out tough election, says Monk. You get all the trappings of power, but you didn't actually have to run that hard gauntlet of a leadership race or federal election, which is unpleasant for many people, not just women. But Raid says the idea that women are somehow settling for interim leadership roles is just not true. Quote, I mean, given the opportunity, I'll take it. I'm going to take the opportunity, and I'm going to disprove. My point of view is... I don't care what your motivation is. Just give me the job, and I'm going to prove to you that I can do it. Are there any downsides to taking on the interim role? According to Monk, it's a messy, thankless job that no one will remember you for. Quote, They choose women as interim. Why? Because they want to wade through all the shit and pull everybody back together and get the house in order before the guy, who has all the power, gets to come in and take over. Rate disagrees with this argument. Quote, what it does, it allows you to showcase your skills and proves leadership ability, which are important both in the party and in Parliament, but as well as in real life, when you do end up deciding to leave or if your constituents fire you. Quote, women are not dumb, she says. They are strategic actors. They're reading the context. I find this to be a much more satisfying explanation. 
The fact is, many of our politicians come from an incredibly narrow segment of the population. Politicians are still mostly men, still mostly white, and still mostly upper class. The lack of women leaders will continue as long as this trend continues. When there is a smaller pool to draw from, gaining the top job is all the more difficult. Quote, when I think about the one-income, single-mom households who would have to give up their income for two months in order to run for office, it becomes very clear why women don't run, says Arazu Najibizada, founder and managing director of Platform, an organization that aims to help Black, Indigenous, and other racialized women and gender-diverse people achieve leadership roles. This is why it is such an anomaly to see political candidates who are Black or Indigenous women from non-professional backgrounds, Najib Bazada says. Quote, Our political system is so inaccessible to people who don't come from a certain cultural background or a certain economic background. And when candidates from diverse backgrounds do run and even climb to high positions, their status is not secure. Quote, we've seen these troublemakers, the black, the indigenous politicians who go against the flow, Najibazada says. Think Jody Wilson-Raybould, who left the liberals after a conflict with Justin Trudeau. And Annamie Paul, who had a short tenure as leader of the Greens. Quote, they become like shining stars in this constellation of cabinets. And the moment that they don't go with the flow anymore, they're kicked out so easily. Elizabeth May points to another potential explanation, one she says she's been working to fix for years. Quote, The countries in the world that have the most women in office are all proportional representation. Countries that have the most women prime ministers, all proportional representation countries, she says. A proportional representation electoral system is one in which the number of legislative seats a party wins directly reflects the number of votes it received. In Canada's system, by contrast, the seat goes to whoever gets the most votes, even if it's by a slim margin. Running for a leadership position is a life-changing commitment that requires total focus for a job that may never come. And the level of harassment that politicians open themselves up to can be hard to bear. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been harassed for seemingly as long as he has been in politics, most recently at a campaign stop in Peterborough, Kawartha. And he's not alone. According to the Toronto Star, the Canadian press surveyed women MPs about harassment in 2018 it found that nearly 58% of respondents said they had personally experienced sexual misconduct while in the office. With all these barriers in mind, is it so surprising that, now that the Conservative leadership race is underway, it's once again looking like almost every other leadership race in our country's history? On February 5th, Pierre Polyev tweeted out his first campaign message as he announced his bid to become permanent leader of the Conservatives. The MP for Carleton in Ottawa immediately became a front-runner. As of July, five others have announced their decision to run, including Jean Charest. Only one woman has entered the race, Leslie Lewis, an Ontario MP who came in third the last time around. Lewis is not as well known by the public. She was not given a critic portfolio by Aaron O'Toole, 
and if she aims to win, she will have to spend her time between now and the September 10th election making sure Canadians know who she is. Previous interim leaders like Rona Ambrose, who are eligible to run and already have the public profile, are notably staying out of the fray. Quote, the natural thought will be that we as women believe that we can't do the real job. And that's not the case, says Rate. It's not about whether or not we can do the job. We all believe we can do a better job than the guys can. The problem is, can we get the job? That's it. And sometimes getting the interim job and putting things right, fixing the messes that came before, is a lot more valuable than getting the big job and running an election and losing. Regardless of who ultimately wins the party leadership, the question no one can really answer is, does having a woman leader really matter? Will gender parity actually make government better for Canadians? Sapria Duivetti, senior counsel at communications firm Enterprise and former campaign advisor for Toronto mayoral candidate David Soknaki, says she doesn't think it's a coincidence that we now have a gender-diverse cabinet in power and our government is finally making advances in child care. But, she cautions, there are effective and ineffective leaders from all genders and all backgrounds. Quote, I think women can be terrible people and terrible leaders, just as men can be terrible leaders and people. But I think when you only have a third of women as parliamentarians, there are just natural blind spots that go unchecked. Peggy Nash, a former NDP MP and author of Women Winning Office, an activist's guide to getting elected, agrees. Quote, I would also argue that just rotating the chairs and putting different faces is not necessarily the solution. These structures are, in some ways, very fossilized structures and can be very chafing for some women when they get elected. So I think it's not just a question of electing more women or more diverse parliamentarians. It is about electing those who really understand the need for transformation and are committed not just to themselves getting elected, but also to transforming our structures to leave doors more open for others. Najib Bazada goes even further in cautioning against gender parity as a goal in and of itself. Quote, I think our present obsession with representation politics will be our demise, she says. We want these women to represent these ideals that we have for a better future without necessarily understanding the political condition that we're putting them in. Representation is a means to an end. Representation is not the end. That was an article titled No Room at the Top by Angela Misery. I'm Lori Wilson. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Bill Shackleton, Matthew Maynard, and Jacob Shemansky. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, 
and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.